An awful lot has been said about the way that the European Union has tackled the COVID-19 pandemic, especially its vaccination strategy. Just to give you a couple of examples from the podcast world. Last April, the New York Times' The Daily released an episode with the name Europe's Vaccination Problem. A month before, on the 18th of March, Vox's Worldly discussed what they called Europe's vaccine disaster. These are two different media outlets outside of the EU looking at how Europe is tackling the COVID-19 pandemic. As you can guess, their take is not super positive. But are they right? Does Europe actually have a vaccination problem? And if so, whose fault is it? The latest figures from early June 2021 tell us that since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the European Union and the European Economic Area have recorded over 32 million COVID-19 cases and more than 725,000 COVID-19 deaths. On the upside, the European Union has managed to secure 4.4 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines, enough to inoculate its entire population 10 times over. Moreover, close to half of the adult EU population has received at least one dose to date. Do these numbers tell the whole story? Are they enough to pass a judgment on the efficacy of public action in the face of one of the biggest challenges that the world has ever faced? In today's episode, we take a look at how the EU has managed the COVID-19 pandemic from a European perspective. We talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Welcome to EU Untangled. Let's start at the beginning. And for that, I'm going to turn over to Harpa so she can tell us a little bit about what the EU has been doing to tackle this pandemic. Thank you very much, Victor. Uh, happy to contribute to this. Um, so basically, uh, in the EU, at the start of this pandemic, we had um, Germany, France, Italy and the Netherlands uh, starting to work on something that they called the Inclusive Vaccine Alliance. Um, but very quickly, they realized, along with other member states, actually, that it would make total sense that they would just hand over this whole vaccine purchasing thing over to the EU. And in June 18th, 2020, we had this commission decision adopted which basically confirmed the member state agreement between the member states and the commission. So officially, um, the European Commission was mandated with negotiating on behalf of the member states with these uh, vaccine manufacturers, uh, drawing up what, what is called advanced purchasing agreements, uh, which would be financed through the EU's emergency support instrument. Um, so essentially what the European Commission was doing was using this funding to negotiate access for all of the member states to successful vaccines once they would be ready. Now, normally this process of producing a vaccine takes 10 years or so. And the reason for that is that you don't have the investment of manufacturers into the production until you have a viable product. I mean, who wants to spend billions of dollars into something that actually doesn't work in the end? It's risky business. It is extremely risky business, which is a Tom Cruise movie, by the way. So nice referencing. I give it two oh, thumbs up. Of course, up. I knew that. <laughs> 
Yeah, so what uh, the EU, and of course, along with also rich countries around the world, uh, namely the US and the UK did, is that um, they sort of negotiated uh, with these companies and invested a lot of money in advance. Uh, and what that achieved is that rather than having this 10-year linear process where first you have a, you know process A and then B and then C, uh, all of these processes were compressed and they were happening simultaneously. And this resulted in the vaccines actually being developed and started to be distributed in less than a year, which is, uh, you know, a remarkable uh, success if you think about it. So basically what the EU is doing here through the European Commission, its executive arm is say, instead of having each of our 27 member states negotiate separately with the big pharma companies, we're going to do that on their behalf. Yeah, exactly. But there is one important distinction to make here. And I kind of feel like this has gotten lost a little bit in the explosive headlines in the media. The EU Commission is really just negotiating the access to the vaccines. But then the actual purchasing or, you know, buying the vaccines and then, you know, acquiring them and distributing them. So actually putting the needles into the arms of, of citizens. This is something that is the responsible responsibility of the member states. Um, so there is a, an important distinction to make there. Uh, but ultimately, the, the funding that comes from this emergency support instrument uh, and is uh, paid through these advanced purchasing agreements, they also serve as a, an upfront payment for eventual purchases if and when they happen. So that means that when the member states actually go and start buying the actual vaccines, they already have sort of a discount there because of the EU support. So it results in lower prices overall for the member states. And by the way, just to... Uh try to explain things here this emergency support instrument so i'm for this episode i'm the jargon police <laughs> have i been arrested alex not not yet but almost because emergency support instrument so what does what does it mean instrument it means just it's a part of a budget that is dedicated to that specific thing exactly the, um, the member state decided to have 2.7 billion euros used for all kinds of covid related uh health issues and, and they call this they call this an instrument on the european level why we don't know or there might be good reasons but just for our listeners to understand what an instrument is it's not something with music or whatever to do ah thank you alex uh, that's very good uh, the jargon police has uh, <laughs> helped society yet again uh, through its uh, jargon monitoring now i mean essentially what it is is just the EU member states saying, hey, let's take uh, a portion of our collective pot of money and let's dedicate it to this specific cause, is what it means. So it's nothing else than that. So I want to touch upon just a little bit, like what then happened in practice? Okay, we have this instrument and the commission has been mandated to draft something that is called APAs. But what exactly happened? Um, so this agreement that was concluded between the member states and the commission, it spelled out that there would be this steering committee. So essentially all of the member states, they have their high level representatives to represent them in this committee, which would be chaired by the commission and then co-chaired by a member state that would have advanced experience in this specific topic of, you know, uh, buying and vaccines, essentially, whatever that means. Um, but then the interesting part is that this steering committee then nominated a small team of experts that together with the commission would form a joint negotiating team. 
And this team was permitted to start negotiating talks with these manufacturers if at least four member states were interested in doing so, and then they could represent sort of the EU's demands and criteria in this regard. And then ultimately, they would come with a draft uh, advanced purchasing agreement that um, these member states would normally approve. But if for some reason they were not happy with it, they have apparently a clause that they could opt out. But that's sort of how this process was, uh, was unfolding. Right. And they uh, were not negotiating with just any pharma company. They had a set of criteria as to which companies they would be able to initiate talks with. I think it was quite open on behalf of the EU. I mean, they said any company that is in the process of developing a vaccine, you know, hey, oh, we're open for business. But they wouldn't actually start the negotiation process unless they knew that they had at least some level of support from the member states. And in terms of this criteria, I mean, the EU did, in my opinion, a very noble thing, uh, but we can probably debate that a lot back and forth. Uh, but they didn't want these companies to sell the vaccines at a profit. They wanted to have it just at cost price. And also they were um, emphasizing that these companies should participate in um, things like the COVAX uh, agreement, which we will talk about more, but is essentially uh, an initiative of the World Health Organization trying to ensure um, equitable and equal access to vaccines across the globe. And the EU was also emphasizing this point in their negotiations. So far, you have mentioned a few actors already. You have mentioned the European Commission, you have mentioned member states, you have mentioned uh, the World Health Organization via this COVAX alliance, and you have mentioned, of course, all these pharma companies that they're negotiating with, which to me points to a very complex uh, sort of um, environment. Uh, so when we talk about whether the EU's vaccination strategy he has been a success or a failure, it's not completely fair because it's not the EU alone. It's a bunch of actors interacting with each other. Um, Alex, I'm wondering if you could give us a quick rundown of who the main actors are in this whole mess. Yeah, I think you're already pointing to the right direction because by also highlighting the fact that there are so many actors in this whole thing also makes it, of course, extremely difficult sometimes to attribute responsibility when things go well or if they don't go well. Um, but you're right. I mean, of course, uh, as I am the jargon police, I now have, of course, also the responsibility to explain some of the players that are creating jargons or responsible for jargons. And of course, our um, the most important player is, of course, the European Commission, which is, as you might know, the executive part of the European Union, responsible for for drafting uh, laws, but itself not passing them. This is the the part of the of the Parliament and the Council. Um, and of course, the Commission is is kind of like crucial in this process because, first of all, as we heard, it was in the center of um, of the negotiation. But of course, it is also this this organization, so to say, that is authorizing any kind of vaccination within the European Union. However, the European Commission itself doesn't have the expertise uh, of knowing whether a vaccination is of good quality or not. And that's why there is a, another organization responsible for that, which is the European Medicine Agency, the EMMA, um, seated in Amsterdam, before Brexit in London, by the way. And it was founded um, as another organization in 1995. And it's 
responsible for the scientific evaluation, the supervision, and the safety monitoring of medicines in the um, in the EU. So it what it does, it's gathering information, it's drafting studies, it's it's also then passing on the information to EU institutions and member states, and it tries to coordinate and and share the information. So in practice, it means that it gets information from the drug makers. So for for example, from BioNTech, Pfizer, or from AstraZeneca, they collect a lot of data on on the progress of their vaccination trials, and they pass it on to the EMA, and then the EMA looks at the data, and if the EMA thinks, oh, the data is it's first of all of good quality and then the results are good then they actually come to a recommendation and say oh european commission we think this is a, a safe and and also effective um, drug or vaccine you can approve it and then the commission itself can again decide whether it follows that recommendation it's a bit different than in other um, states i think in the us for example the fda the federal drug administration does it on its own there is not no second body and in the european union it's basically split up between two different institutions i have to say so basically what you're saying is the european medicines agency evaluates in this case the vaccine uh, so it gathers data on its effectiveness on whether there are yep. any dangers to public health and then passes this information on to the European Commission, yeah. who's ultimately responsible for green lighting, approving or not a specific vaccine. Exactly. It's getting a bit more complicated, but this is basically the, the easiest part or the, the simplest way. Um, I mean, the, the EMA is not gathering information, by the way. It get, by, this, by itself, it gets the information from the drug makers uh, because it doesn't have any capacity to do it so of course we also have to trust that that, uh, that the pharma companies are actually providing like truthful information uh, who doesn't trust them <laughs> well that's maybe a, a that's maybe a topic for a different uh, podcast episodes <laughs> but to just just to wrap up like the eu level uh, institutional portfolio let's say um you have then finally the european center for disease prevention and control which is the ECDC. So this European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, founded in 2004, uh, seated in Stockholm, is basically something, again, like of an of information gathering center. So it also is drafting scientific studies. It has information. It gets information from the member states on where, kind of, where uh, certain diseases are breaking out or are spreading. So in, in non-COVID times, there are tons of like diseases that are spreading and that have to be controlled locally. And and so the the ECDC is doing that on the EU level and cooperating with all kinds of um, agencies on the national level. Yeah, and then going to the national level, um, there of course we have. The governments mostly in, in the COVID crisis responsible for buying the vaccines and then doing all the logistical parts of basically distributing the vaccines down to vaccination centers or to, to doctors huh? and also are responsible for the prioritization. So who gets to vaccinated first? And uh, and also on the member state level in the European Union, uh, every member state has normally its own public health authority um, that is responsible for gathering data on public health issues, on the on the spreading of diseases. And then there is also normally, um, uh, sorry, approval agencies like the EMAF on the European level. I think Hungary has approved uh, by itself. Um, vaccines uh, from Russia and from China, but most other countries have followed, so to say, the the EMA and then the Commission approval and have not approved by themselves 
um, vaccines. Although there has also been voices in Germany that said, oh, be faster, you know, our own national approval agency should actually uh, approve this and that vaccine before the EMMA and the commission because they are too slow on the European level. And uh, yeah, maybe just to wrap it up, if we go then one level up to the United Nations, we have the WHO, the World Health Organization, founded in 1948, uh, seated in Geneva, and it's basically the public health arm or the public health agency of the United Nations. And its primary role is to direct and coordinate international health within the United Nations system. Uh, it has, again, a big role of monitoring and coordination. It also share, is sharing best practices on how to uh, do certain procedures, testing, uh, how to run certain stuff, uh, standards. So it has a lot of also yeah information sharing and especially important also, of course, for countries with uh, less strong health systems. Its big role, of course, is uh, COVAX. We have mentioned that before. And, of course, also the WHO was the, the organization that actually declared uh, COVID-19 and, and the virus uh, pandemic maybe being too late for that. So it has a big role and the, and the EU, of course, also follows kind of like a bit what the WHO is saying about COVID. Thank you so much, Alex. I think that when people are talking about the EU and how it's doing in its vaccination strategy, we don't really keep in mind that there are so many players involved and there are yeah. so many levels. It's not that simple, simply put pun intended. <laughs> yeah, and I also find it often ineffective to say talk about the EU because the EU it's everything and nothing at the same time. You know? So the EU is like a hull of nothingness. So if you want to attribute shame, Ooh. you can always say to EU, but you can also al yeah. always say, oh the EU is has done great things, but then no one knows who do you mean exactly? Do you mean like certain politicians with on the EU level? Do you mean institutions? Do you mean uh, this and this agency? So I think it's very important to keep in mind that they're different players and we have to look very carefully who is actually responsible for what and who isn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. One thing that you mentioned, and I think it's very relevant, is uh, this competence that is shared between the European Union and its member states. And this is in the domain of health, public health. For uh, some people living outside of the EU, I think this might be a bit confusing because uh, when you think about the European Union, maybe you think about uh, some kind of centralized government that makes decisions on behalf of its constituents. In this case, uh, the EU is responsible for certain things, for instance, trade, where it actually negotiates trade agreements on behalf of all its member states. But when it comes to public health issues, then this is a shared competence. And one of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic goes on to show is how member states very quickly realized that it was going to be an awful mess if they were to negotiate bilaterally with pharma companies, each of them, um, access to vaccines. And they, I mean, I'm going to say, quote unquote, fast enough, quickly enough, delegated this um, responsibility to a centralized authority, in this case, the European Commission. So it would negotiate with one single voice on behalf of them. And that is actually the first point that I want to make uh, in favor of the EU. So if we were to, you know, <laughs> kind of like have a scoreboard and say, okay, what did the EU do right? What did it do wrong? One of the first things that I would highlight is that the European Union managed to establish some sort of level playing field by negotiating on behalf of 27 countries, uh, which in total represent around 450 million people. It managed to simplify negotiation procedures. On the other hand, it also managed to increase its leverage vis-a-vis -vis the powerful pharma industry. So uh, here you don't have 27 smaller entities negotiating, but one 
very strong body, the European Commission. And finally, what I think it also did was manage to negotiate low prices for vaccines. So basically saying, okay, guys, I'm going to negotiate on behalf of all of you, you 27, so you uh, just wait over there. I will make sure that the price that you get is fair. So in that sense, it was equal access to vaccines. So the EU somehow made sure that, you know, mighty Germany was not going to get a much better deal than tiny Latvia, or in this case, Iceland. Point in favor of the EU, and just a little of, uh, you know, a little bit of an anecdote from, you know, Iceland here. I mean, of course, we decided uh, to go with the EU. So through our uh, participation in the European economic area, we had the option to opt for following the EU strategy, or we could go it alone. And uh, we, I mean, our government decided to go with the EU exactly for this reason. I mean, it, it wouldn't make sense for us to be like tiny Iceland negotiating on the global stage with these, you know, big players in our tiny GDP and ch tiny economy. Um, but of course, I mean, we saw that, you know, other countries like the UK and the US maybe started vaccinating a bit earlier, getting a bit more doses than the EU. And a lot of critics here in Iceland were like, oh, the EU is so slow. I mean, we should have just, you know, it was a mistake to go with the EU, etc. But, you know, really, do you really think that tiny Iceland would have stood a better chance to get better and fair access to these vaccines if we would have gone it alone? I think that we totally make the right decision, at least in my view, to simply follow this solidarity and joint effort within the EU and not just be like a tiny island nation on the global stage. I mean, we would like to think that we would have, of course, been much more successful than the EU because, of course, we're brilliant and voila. But I mean, in reality, that's not what would have happened. Sorry, Icelanders listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think you make an interesting point because I also kind of like would know, say, oh, but there's Israel. Look at those very small country and have a lot of vaccines. And then there is Serbia, actually also quite a small country and has also also not super rich and has a lot of vaccines. Um, so what do you say about that? You know, so people could 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 say that uh, it's also possible as a small country to uh, to secure vaccines. However, and just make a point against my own point, if of course twenty seven countries would have been not used one single approach, but twenty seven times six, so we have six big drug makers now with uh, contracts, so over one hundred fifty. Uh, procedures, then I guess it, it could have been well happened that some small countries would have been really left out behind. So maybe Israel, maybe not, would have gained the same success, uh, the same access, maybe Serbia or not, but it could have also happened that that some other countries would have been far ahead and maybe already now done with all the vaccinations and some others even wouldn't have even started, you know. Mm. So it's 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 really tricky to have like this counterfactual world uh, because so many things might have changed. But this is at the same time a little bit of what we're doing. We're doing a kind of like counterfactual episode, like trying to think about what could have been. Um, so there is a lot of, of course, guessing, you know, I mean, informed guessing, of course. Um, but uh, you mentioned Israel. Now, I think Israel is doing great COVID-wise. One thing we must acknowledge, though, is, and maybe we'll talk about this in a bit more detail later, is also Israel got higher prices. So Israel is paying almost three times more than the EU for certain vaccines, like the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Um, and that we know because some agreements were disclosed, like, you know, leaked unintentionally uh, on Twitter. Uh, or but Or intentionally, we'll <laughs> never know, you know. No, no, there was actually the... 
they're the Bel- I think a Belgian prime minister or someone from the Belgian negotiation team actually leaked the price list for the six uh, vaccines they secured. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Although Belgium very quickly claimed that it was unintentional. That's why, I mean, it could have been intentional. It could have been unintentional. Point, point is, it was there on Twitter. Somebody took a screenshot. And now everyone knows how much the EU paid for each of the vaccines. But the thing is, um, and I want to turn this around a little bit because uh, it's still an excellent point. Very small countries such as Serbia, Israel, uh, still managed to get vaccines. We don't know exactly what price, but maybe higher, maybe not. But what the EU uh, managed to ensure was that there would not be opaque deals for different member states, meaning that it would get one deal for all its member states. So member states would not be left wondering whether France got a better deal than Poland or whether you know Romania was uh, would not be able to purchase vaccines at a sensible price as opposed to Spain etc you know like it was just again this level playing field for member states and one last thing on the positive side from my side is that the EU managed also to include legal responsibility clauses in its agreements with pharma companies with drug makers This is something that in other regions of the world, uh, political leaders were not willing to uh, discuss. Uh, They were willing to forego these legal responsibility clauses because of the uh, emergency, because human lives are the most important thing. So let's go for it. Uh, The EU, of course, held back a little bit because it wanted to make sure that in case something went horribly wrong, drug makers could be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll stop there. And I'll let you guys take over and now bash some of these arguments or maybe, you know, uh, add some other positive points to the scoreboard. I think it's a very important point that you make that, you know, the instinct in this kind of situation is probably to just take a lot of money and throw it at these manufacturers and just say, like, we just want whatever you can give us as quickly as possible. Uh, But I think the EU took some very important steps to make sure that, you know, you find the right balance between speed and also solidarity and safety and risk, etc. And um, when we were talking about the situation in the EU earlier, I wanted to mention a point that I didn't, uh, that I then ultimately forgot. But today we have four vaccines that are approved in the EU: so Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson and Johnson, and two vaccines that we have agreements with for as well: Sanofi and CureVac. But they're just you know under final final evaluation and exploratory talks ongoing with two additional companies. Uh, Novovax and Valneva. So if you think about it, that is actually quite a big portfolio of safe, secure vaccines at a fair price for every member state, also with these legal responsibility clauses insured, and also doses being donated for a global effort as well. So I think when you think about it like that, that's actually not so bad. Yeah, no, I think you make a good point there. And uh, since you mentioned the six um, vaccine makers, um, which contracts have been made, indeed only four of them are approved in the uh, in the EU, and CureVac and Sanofi haven't yet uh, got a final approval, or Sanofi even even is not ready yet uh, to to deliver a vaccine at all because they had a major setback. Um, so the EU. Uh, not only negotiate on prices, but also kind of like spread a bit the risk. And this is, of course, a major, I guess, a major plus point um, that they not only sign contracts with one company and said, okay, we're buying, we're buying 2 billion doses from you guys. <laughs> and oops, 
you your vaccine effort didn't work out, so we don't have any vaccine at all uh, for another next two or three years. So they're spread with the risks and uh, they bought more or less equal amounts, 400, 300, 400, 600, so million doses from different producers. So I think that I think this is a plus point. You could, however, argue at the same point, same uh, same time, why didn't you even order more doses per? company um so maybe again here why didn't you order a billion doses from all of the companies each of the companies so in case we would be uh, for sure on the safe side um but again might also be in a, a budget a budgetary pr um, a problem there on on the prices yes on the prices of course um it seems like that the european union indeed negotiated quite well um if you want to make this a plus point, uh, apparently they, they got a 24% discount on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine compared to the United States. Um, so the European Union paid around 12 euros and compared to $18, I think, in the uh, United States. Uh, however, Moderna was more expensive in uh, the EU compared to the US and AstraZeneca was also, again, cheaper in, in Europe. Um, there's actually a, a scoreboard by the, or like a data data um, scoreboard no not scoreboard mm. it's a data uh, <laughs> dashboard dashboard that's it thanks a dashboard by the United Nations um, that actually is tracking all these um, vaccine prices and it's if you look uh, look at this uh, at this uh, data you see that the European Union is mostly at the lower part sometimes there are countries that even have lower prices but then it's also not 100% clear why this is the case if you, for example, look at uh, Hungary, they paid much more for the Sputnik V and also the, the the Chinese vaccine, so over 30 euros sometimes per dose. So, um, yeah, but I have to say also, when it comes to all these prices, and maybe you can contradict me here, um, I think this discussion is actually a bit unnecessary because it is clear that every vaccine, regardless of its price, will be still super beneficial for society um there are economic there are studies uh, out there by economists that estimate that one week of lockdown in the european union costs billions of euros so we have been talking about in the eu about uh, the so-called next generation eu fund uh, which uh, has a capacity of over 750 billion euros to kind of like rebuild europe and help member states that were suffering by the vex uh, by the by the covid crisis and now mm -hmm. we are talking about like oh let's let's make the cheapest deal here so i, I think this is a bit of the wrong priority and i think it uh, even paying a vaccine of a hundred dollars probably per dose would have been still like would, would be a cost a lot of money for the for the companies but in the end would be still cheaper to do that and just have more of them than starting to to actually uh, be like be very stingy here um I, this is already foreshadowing some other parts and yeah. stuff we, we talk about later but i just wanted to make this point here um i think it's a fair argument uh, and and why not bring stinginess uh, to the debate now um what's the price of a human life i mean some people would be right in saying that it's actually priceless so if you have the purchasing power especially you know you you think about the european union as being a rich region so if it could afford buying vaccines at a slightly higher price of course that would have translated into billions of euros but if it could have done it then why didn't it do it yeah right you mentioned how much it costs you know one week of lockdown and uh, and i remember there is uh, this german uh, journalist who wrote a couple of months ago that negotiating low prices was possibly our worst policy mistake um, 
Now, it, it's left to be seen if that's actually the case, but indeed, I mean, just saying like, oh, we managed to, you know, save ourselves a couple billion euros in negotiations, maybe it's not the best argument. I fully agree. I think these are excellent points that you are making, but the EU was bound by the limitations of the budget that it had. Uh, this SE uh, emergency support uh, instrument was not, you know, a boundless resource. And at the same time, we were negotiating the next multi-financial framework, of course, for the EU. So I didn't say MFF, uh, otherwise the jargon police would have arrested me on the spot. Um, so maybe the political landscape was a bit difficult for these EU negotiators, where at the same time they have to convince these companies uh, to, you know, bargain with the EU. They had, you know, politicians trying to negotiate down the EU budget a bit. So, I mean, there were a lot of factors that also um, came to play uh, in this whole process. But Moving maybe away a bit from the pricing, I think, okay, what, what in the end we ended up paying is maybe not the key thing. I think what we should look at is that overcoming this pandemic, it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. And even though the EU maybe was a bit slow in the beginning, maybe it was a bit stingy, maybe it bargained a little too much. The situation now in Europe actually is not that bad in the global context. So on average, now the, the vaccination rates in the EU are around 30%, but we are projected to catch up with the UK and the US uh, in July. So things are not looking that bad. And when you factor in um, all of these clauses that they managed to include in these uh, contracts to protect its citizens, uh, it's not looking so bad. And I think that how much... Uh, for how much and uh, how quickly you manage to get these vaccine. I mean, it's just one piece of the puzzle. And even bigger piece is that people actually take the vaccine. And here, I think mm. the EU is doing quite well compared to uh, especially the US, where they now have an oversupply of vaccines and people that are not willing to take them because of poor public information and, and vaccine skepticism. And here, I think the EU actually has done a, a quite a good job uh, of you know maintaining a scientific and accurate messaging to its public. And at least in Iceland, I would say, you know, 95% or over 95% of the population are eager to take the vaccine. So as soon as they enter the country, you know, the vaccines, they're gone like that. Um, and in the US, you know, because of the political landscape and how the pandemic was handled, um, they are facing a bit of a situation over there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. However, I also would like to just mention that also vaccine skepticism is a real problem in the uh, European Union. Um, so I, I think they are diff it's really the, the rates of of vaccine skepticisms are really different between different countries. I was just reading today the numbers from Belgium, for example, that in, in, in the northern part of Belgium, in Flanders, 95% of the people are very eager to have the vaccine. In, in, in Wallonia, the southern part, because also of its closeness to France, which is the most skeptical country in the European Union, the number is, is around 70-75%. In Brussels, it's even lower because also of different backgrounds so different very very heterogeneous very multicultural um, city so let's see how we are in two months you know so now yeah. we see that that the vaccine success uh, the vaccine rate is is falling so to say in the united states and also in israel by the way also in the uk their vaccination slower than in the beginning i hope not but i feel that this might at least also happen in certain countries in the european union yeah it's it's a bit early to to be able to tell uh, which approach is actually or was the correct one and i think we don't need 
to remind ourselves that there is no recipe for this, right? Yeah. Like what works in one country doesn't necessarily work in a different one because of many circumstances. But one thing that I'd like to point out is I think the EU was very much focused on the process. Uh, that's my feeling. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure that we get the process right? You know, um, let's ensure access. Let's ensure a fair price. Let's ensure that all our member states get a share of the vaccine pie. And and that, of course, translates into delays. I mean, that's the downside. You, uh, mm -hmm. you have limited resources. Uh, you have uh, limited time. So you sacrifice some things for others. So, of course, what's going to work best in the mid or long term is yet to be seen. Maybe the U.S. and the U.K. got a head start. But it's true that now the U.S. is facing an oversupply mm -hmm. and the demand is fading. Yeah. Um, also, in any case, um, as Harpa said, um, this is not a sprint race. You need to make sure that the whole world is vaccinated, yeah. that you know herd immunity is achieved at the global level and not just in one region. I'm just thinking also about our measurement stick. Mm -hmm. We're saying one region or one country is doing better than a different one based on what? Based on number of cases, based on the number of deaths, based on the number of doses that have been administered, based on the number of vaccines that have been secured. What is our standard? So what are we measuring against? I think that's very important. And again, I bring up the process. So I think uh, that's what uh, you know, might be setting the EU apart um, because it had a much more complex negotiation procedure. And then all these other indicators, I guess we will need to wait a little bit longer to see what in the end was the result of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think you, you bring up an excellent point as well that, you know, we are looking at vaccinations as like the stick for which we can measure success in fighting this pandemic. But of course, that is only, you know, it's a very important piece, uh, but maybe an even more important one is informing your public well, um, getting them to respect the containment measures that you can put in place. And actually, if I, you know, allow myself to uh, go back to an earlier point where you were talking about Israel and their vaccination rates, actually Israel made like a, a testing deal with Pfizer where they would uh, be a part of an experiment with Pfizer. So f to test, you know, how well the vaccine was uh, working, Israel was supplying them with sort of data on this. And Iceland tried to do the same thing with Pfizer. We were like this close to uh, securing an additional deal with Pfizer where we would get more vaccines very quickly, vaccinate, you know, the Icelandic population overnight. And we could see, you know, how well the vaccine is working and how fast you reach herd immunity. But um, Iceland actually in the final stages of this negotiation didn't get the deal with Pfizer. The reason was there was no COVID pandemic in Iceland. So how do you measure the effectiveness of a vaccine when there is no pandemic ongoing? And that is because the Icelandic government enforced a very good uh, testing and, and tracing policy. And also, yeah, I mean, let's face it, we're a scarcely populated island in the middle of North Atlantic. So, you know, there are other ways of, you know, having success in this pandemic as well. And I think we should just uh, think about that uh, as well when we are talking about this. And here just going back to fairness and ethics, I think when we're talking about, you know, how successful or unsuccessful is the EU, how well did we do or didn't we do? 
we have to think about that, you know, a majority of the world and at least a majority of the developing world, you have less than 1% of the population vaccinated. And, you know, talking about also this being a marathon, I mean, we don't overcome this pandemic unless you have a high percentage of population vaccinated everywhere. And you could make the argument that it's better to have like 50% of the population vaccinated across the entire globe instead of having like 100% of the population vaccinated in the EU. Meanwhile, this virus, which is, you know, humanity's enemy, number one, is just festering and mutating and potentially can undermine the entire success that we have had with this vaccination. So I think we have to take a look at this whole situation much more holistically than just how well did the EU negotiate prices and how quickly? I think I think you make a good point here. In the end, it's a marathon, and uh, we need in the end to have a to have a global approach on that. However, still every constituency, or sorry, every politician, of course, tries to is of course responsible for its own people you know so mm -hmm. uh, obviously uh, there need to be then there need to be also success on on the on the national or on the european slash or on the on the us level so of course uh, it's it's hard for every politician to say oh we are doing globally globally we are doing great but of course guys sorry we're shipping all our vaccines <laughs> abroad uh, i i see there's also of course a conflict yeah i mean i completely sympathize with that i because i saw here in iceland like we we are doing pretty good we're like almost the best in the world in terms of preventing the spread of the virus And at the same time, people were saying, like, we should have more vaccination doses here in Iceland quicker. And I just looked at those people and I was thinking, like, you do realize that there are millions of people dying elsewhere. Meanwhile, here in Iceland, we are safe. And you're trying to justify that Iceland sh should somehow cut in the line in front of the line and get doses faster. And, you know, you have... You know, politicians arguing for that, understandably, because in the yeah. sort of crisis, you start to think like, how do I protect my people, you know, and it's very difficult to avoid that kind of thinking yet. Global problems cannot be solved with strictly local solutions. You you have to avoid the temptation to save yourself first and you have to look at this problem holistically. And that's why I think even though the EU did very well, I think this precedent has to be replicated on the global level through efforts like the COVAX in the future. If we're looking at the future pandemic, you know, this this situation cannot unfold as it did this time around. This makes me think that we should be able to find a better analogy, though, because we go from saying, okay, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon, but in a marathon you still have winners, right? You still have someone who gets there first, and then you have all the, a lot of other people who get there second, third, fourth, fifth. And some, some never arrive, huh? Exactly, and some never arrive, some, some quit the race, yeah, some yeah, actually, yeah. you know, uh, dehydrate. So A coordinated parade is what we want to see at the, at the global level. Like everybody like walking that. in unity, in unison, coordinated parade of celebration of humanity against the virus. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I, I, don't, I don't see Alex very excited about this concept. It was also a very terrible analogy. I do apologize and digress. <laughs> okay, let's keep the sportiveness in the game. I would think then of more of a relay But then there are no teams. It's just a relay race. And then it means that you have to pass on the torch mm -hmm. to someone else, right? And you only complete the race if that torch goes from one point, from point A to point whatever, F. Mm -hmm. And if you don't pass it on, then the race is not over. Mm -hmm. You're still running. 
How about that, Alex? Did I do better? I like that one because this also gives me the opportunity yes. to talk about a bit or to, to tell you some some insights about actually passing on stuff. When we talk about vaccines, one thing we haven't mentioned at all is actually how to make a vaccine. You know? So a bit uh, a bit of the nitty-gritty detail on the supply chains of vaccines. It is actually, actually quite fascinating, I have to say. Um, however, it is very complicated. And, and one thing that I think has been done not very well at the EU level is to see that problem holistically. It seemed like to me that at least the European Union kind of like said, okay, guys, here we order 600 million uh, vaccines from you. Please deliver as fast as you can and uh, see you in March, okay? Or see you in January, you know, in half a year later. And people were not really aware of what is needed to make a vaccine. Sorry, if, if someone now in the commission hears that and is terribly uh, insulted what I'm saying, then please reach out to us and explain how it has been done at the commission. But uh, at least there's a lot of media reporting that the commission has been rather just a consumer and not really involved in this whole process of, of supply chain. Because in the end, face it, I mean, uh, every vaccine needs tons of material, hundreds of, of different pre-products, uh, downstream, upstream machines to produce these things. And then, of course, these things are not produced in one factory. They're like produced in several factories, then uh, mm. shipped around Europe, shipped around the world. Then you need the veils. You need the products to make the veils. Then you put the vaccine in the veils and they ship it, ship it somewhere else. You need machines to produce all these things. So it's, it's really complicated. And, and of course, you're not producing cookies here. I mean, cookies may be a better example. You're not producing... Um, like tires for cars that need to be safe but you know if they're dirty who cares but of course if, if a vaccine produ production line is, is dirty if somehow contaminated you know that's a big issue because this this stuff you put into people's bodies you put cookies in pe people's bodies too uh, <laughs> why, why was that not a good example <laughs> i said cookies is not a good example i said tires of cars maybe you know something that is safe but can be a bit rough you know if there is a bit of an little thing like missing at a, at a at a car tire you know it's it should be safe but you know it's it's you know it can, can be a bit dirty it can be a bit rough you know while you know cookies can, cookies cannot be rough but cookies can shouldn't be dirty but vaccines <laughs> should, should, should neither be rough nor dirty you know so it's, it's very important <laughs> that uh, we're getting into yeah, muddy territory alex yeah um but i agree i think i think this whole supply chain uh, discussion is quite underrated yes. and um It makes me think about this whole, you know, free the vaccine discussion where um, a lot of countries, especially, you know, the United States making headlines about, okay, let's, you know, um, make the patents uh, freely available to the whole okay, world. I'm going to have to stop you guys right now. I'm going to be the pronunciation police. Uh, Alex can be the jargon police. So Alex was talking about the supply chains earlier and said veils and he meant vials. Ah, vials. I'm sorry. And what you are talking about right now is a patent, not not a patent. So carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so when we talk about the patent, yes, the patent. Thing, um, did I say it right? Yes, beautiful. Okay, so if we think about a patent, and I'm gonna oversimplify it as a recipe to make uh, cookies or tires, then. Uh, of course, you can share that or you can keep it for yourself. So in the event where you actually share it with other people so they can make those cookies or those tires themselves, 
then just sharing the ingredients is not enough. We also need to share the process and we need to, you know, also share the know-how and we need to build capacity. And also what would happen in case we share this recipe? And then it turns out that sugar is actually a very important ingredient. And then everybody rushes to get that ingredient and then keep it for themselves. Then we are effectively uh, breaking these supply chains that are all the more important in order to produce vaccines that can be delivered to different regions in the world. Yeah, I agree with you, Victor. And um, it's an issue that also has been um, basically underrated or not been taken seriously by, by the European Commission in terms of funding on the one side. So we talked about, we, we mentioned this 2.7 billion from this uh, the emergency instrument. Uh, only a billion, though, had been actually allocated to uh, producing vaccines. 1.7 billion have been had been uh, allocated to to finance other stuff covid red other stuff and then the european um commission and also member states really i think they didn't know really what it meant to produce a vaccine because obviously there was no competence and also therefore no expertise on on the eu commission level and also probably not really on on, on the member state level either because no one ever faced that issue of suddenly producing billions of, of doses of vaccines. So what happened is that then they realized quickly, like uh, in the beginning of 2021 especially, that, oh, damn it, somehow, you know, it doesn't really go. You know, we, we receive far less supply than we when they thought. And apparently what happened then is that the commission also took the decision to invest more into that and to have a task force that actually is now monitoring in an outflow of products that are necessary to boost vaccines there's one simple example um the, the johnson and johnson vaccine which is by the way uh, developed by a dutch company janssen janssen and janssen or janssen janssen by janssen i think it's called mm -hmm. so also a european producer together with a, a european developer with an a u.s uh, pharmaceutical uh, so to say a bigger brother or bigger corp uh, partner. Uh, they produce that vaccine partly in Europe, but also partly in the US. They have two supply chains. Mm -hmm. However, initially, the supply chain in Europe was uh, needed actually a shipment from the from Europe to the US um, to fill it in the in the vials and then ship it back. However, uh, you might heard that the US has has a very restrictive policy when it comes to exporting anything related to COVID stuff. So all kind of vaccines are actually under export ban. So what happened is a lot of stuff went to the US and then never came back to Europe. So the, the commission and also member states realized, oh, we need actually to make sure that there is someone that actually can produce the vials in Europe and then serve, uh, basically co cooperate then with, 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 uh, with Johnson Johnson. Similar happened, and then I'm, I'm, I'm finishing here, similar happened with Moderna, for example. Moderna initially only produced in the US, and now they have actually a partner, a Swiss company called Lonza, that actually produces Moderna vaccine in Europe for for the European Union, but also for other countries. And this is totally separate you now from the US. So there are no separate supply chains that are independent of each other. And um, the EU was able to, to increase uh, supply for itself, but also for the world. Related to this, there was also this issue of a lot of vaccines also being produced uh, with factories that are located in the EU. And um, the EU is actually exporting uh, a lot of vaccines um, to, for example, the UK, um, and this is where the whole AstraZeneca dispute sort of comes to play, because in the UK, they were also producing AstraZeneca vaccines there, but they never exported anything to the EU. 
while at the same time the EU was exporting vaccines uh, you know, outside the EU to other countries. So they quickly had to learn the lesson that reciprocity in this kind of situation is not guaranteed unless it was you know, contra contractual and had been um, covered in these agreements. So this is why the EU eventually, you know, learning this hard lesson, took the steps to say, like, we're not going to be exporting, you know, vaccines manufactured in the EU to countries that are not reciprocating and exporting vaccines also produced in their countries to the EU, or where the pandemic is actually under control and vaccine rates are higher than in the EU, then it just simply isn't fair that we are being, you know, free uh, in terms of vaccine exports and imports to and from the EU, and then other countries were not being... Um, you know, reciprocating this. So a lot of things that they, they, I think the EU can learn here. I think this issue about, you know, exporting, importing vaccines is very telling because you could be judging a region for not being savvy enough to negotiate a good deal. Like uh, it has been the case in the EU saying like, oh, maybe you didn't have enough expertise to negotiate a deal where vaccines produced within the EU would cater for a domestic demand first before being exported. But then this begs the question, what if those vaccines, what if the EU had actually negotiated a good deal, quote unquote, and then these vaccines had not been exported elsewhere? What situation would that other region where these vaccines went would be in? Because we haven't figured out the issue of supply chains, this region would have necessarily been worse off. And then it, we would have podcasts in the EU saying like, oh, how other regions failed to negotiate a good deal and their terrible vaccination strategies without actually pinpointing the real issue at hand. What you're kind of like trying to say is, yeah, that is it actually like a zero-sum game we are in or is it a game where we can bake a bigger pie and everybody gets more of the pie? Exactly. And if I were to quickly police you, a zero-sum game would be one in which oh, yes. what one player wins or earns, the other player loses. Yes, thanks, because that's a bit of an, of a, of an academic term here. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's true, because, because what people have been saying is, indeed, you know, uh, if, we, if the EU had paid more, you know, then maybe we would have had a better deal, but then maybe the US had, a, had, had less supply mm -hmm. or, or Israel. So my question is only to the EU Commission or to the negotiations team, would there have been more money on the table? Could we have built up more production facility earlier on? You know, We are building a lot of production facility now, since, uh, especially since the start of the beginning of the year till now. There have been several factories built or reinstalled uh, in the European Union for to produce uh, certain kind of vaccines. But Why now? Why not a half a year earlier? So that's, mm -hmm. that's a bit my question. And then we could have maybe vaccinated not only Europe, but also other countries quicker. Yeah. You can build up scale. You can scale up production. You can make more and more and more. It's just uh, it, how you prioritize resources and how we organize uh, the production and supply chains. And this is why I think a coordinated global effort is so important. It's best to just pull together global purchasing power and say that, you know, in a pandemic situation, let's say, you know, the criteria could be, you know, the WHO, World Health Organization, declares a pandemic. And that's when we dip into these resources so that we ensure that 
um, we ramp up production and we replicate what has been a success in the pandemic, you know, how quickly we managed to develop and then actually produce a vaccine. Uh, but we do it on a global scale with a global coordinated effort. So it's not some countries winning the race while others suffer and people die unnecessarily. Yeah, I think maybe we have to throw altogether money at the problem. You yeah, know? yeah. And maybe this is something actually the you and the world can actually also learn from the United States. The United States were or are very egoistic and also very selfish, but not basically not exporting any vaccine. However, what they did well is, and also I have to say we have to probably credit Donald Trump for that, they set up this so-called Operation Warp Speed, a fantastic name for something, <laughs> and, and they basically threw a lot of money early on on different vaccine manufacturers and also they were not only throwing money but also actually sorting out the supply chains much earlier than the eu so while the eu had a lack of funding i talked about uh, this already we also the eu has also a very scattered rni landscape rni is research and innovation so mm -hmm. a lot of funds in the eu are scattered over different programs so it's very difficult also or harder to actually target really investment in the EU while the, the US had done it more centralized and more holistically thinking from the development of the vaccine to the production and this and the, mm -hmm. and the and the final delivery it's like maybe a different approach also to to really solving a crisis to make things also kind of like quick efficient and effective instead of like only doing the process and then let the free market solve it and this yeah. is what the EU has done at least till recently credit where credit is due i think this is something that you know the trump administration got right um and that's why maybe he was always so confident you know talking about the vaccines would come and you know they would they would nip it in the bud so what what trump got right maybe the eu got wrong but unfortunately trump got wrong the other big piece of the puzzle which was to inform the public Uh, and to ensure that we take the prevention measures also while these vaccines were in development. And we know in the end, um, the, yeah. the death toll in the US was unnecessarily high. So I think, but it's a very good thing to take a look at what, what went well and what was wrong in the EU and do the same in the US and now say, you know, let's heed these lessons, let's learn these lessons and let's replicate the success on a global scale for the next one, which I'm sure will come, unfortunately. If you like the content of this episode, make sure you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We're literally everywhere. And just as important, give us a rating and share the pod with your friends and foes, especially if you hated the pod. That will make them miserable. And of course, uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You find us under the handle EU underscore Untangled, that's Twitter and Instagram, or EU dot Untangled, which is Facebook. And, of course, if you have any suggestions, love, disappointment, or hate email, just write to us at untangled at podworld.org or visit our awesome website, podworld.org slash untangled. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Well, dear listeners, Harpa here reporting for fact-checking duty following a very information-heavy episode where we covered not only a very complicated topic, but also a fast-evolving one where we know oh too well from the past that things can change oh so fast. So let's go over some parts that may need verifying or updating. 
Now, I said in the episode at one point that the EU's negotiations team was quite open to negotiating with any pharma company as long as they had the support of at least four member states. Does my claim hold up? Well, it depends on how you interpret it. Okay, so in the annex to the Commission decision on improving the agreement with member states on procuring COVID-19 vaccines on behalf of the member states and related procedures... (sighs) It is stated under the chapter of process and governance that the, and I quote, joint negotiation team will start working immediately, building on previous contacts with the individual companies by the European Commission and participating member states. In order to launch negotiations with a specific manufacturer, there needs to be support from at least four participating member states. Was this clause about previous contacts a prerequisite to start exploratory talks with companies? You could interpret it as such, but I doubt it. However, another aspect might have placed a de facto limit on how far and wide the joint negotiation team was willing to cast the net. In order to sign an advanced purchasing agreement of vaccines with the company, a number of EU criteria to decide which vaccine producers to support, need to be met, including, but not limited to, soundness of scientific approach and technology used, risk-sharing and liability coverage required, production capacity in the EU, global solidarity, and early engagement with EU regulators with the intention to apply for an EU marketing authorization for the candidate vaccine. So, Knowing this, it's not difficult to imagine that some companies were never really considered from the start. Allegedly. Not naming any names here. Okay, so next up. Alex made a very interesting claim that a Belgian prime minister or someone from the negotiation team leaked the price list of vaccines purchased by the EU. Is this true? And if yes, who was it? And was it a mistake? Yes, this one is indeed true, as confirmed by multiple trusted news sources such as Politico, The Guardian, and Reuters. And, of course, those pesky tweets that, once posted, always manage to find their way to the surface despite prompt deletion. This is exactly the conundrum that Belgium's Budget State Secretary, Eva de Bleeker, found herself in after posting a confidential vaccine price list on Twitter with the amounts of each vaccine that her country intends to buy from the EU. The tweet was quickly deleted, but not quick enough, before a bunch of people had taken screenshots. Where is Flash Gordon when you need him? Was it on purpose, though? Well, I guess only Eva knows for sure, but given the fact that many were complaining about the lack of transparency with the pricing at the time, It's not that far-fetched to think that someone in her camp felt it was the right thing to do to reveal the information. And plot twist, since then, new leaked documents reported on by, for example, Reuters have revealed that those numbers were actually incorrect. Well, whatever the actual price is, I guess EU citizens can take solace in the fact that the EU can actually afford vaccines, a luxury not every country in the world has. Well, next up... I said in the episode that vaccination rates in the EU are around 30%. Well, happy to report that the rates have actually gone up since then. 48% of the EU population has received at least one dose, and the rate is increasing rapidly, so joyful news indeed. Now, Alex stated in the episode that Janssen, 
The company that has created the single-dose COVID-19 vaccine is a Dutch company. Alex would be wrong. Janssen is actually a Belgian company. Janssen Pharmaceuticals was founded in 1953 by Paul Janssen, a Belgian physician, and the company is headquartered in Beers, Belgium. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but Beers, Belgium. Sounds like a nice place. Beers. Well, and it is currently owned by Johnson Johnson. Janssen and his colleagues actually discovered more than 80 new medications in his lifetime, four of which are on the WHO list of essential medicines. Now, in the episode, I took on the vital yet massively underappreciated role of grammar police, and I made two on-the-spot arrests. The first crime occurred when my dear German friend Alex pronounced bio, as in a small container, typically cylindrical and made of glass, as veils, a piece of fine material worn by women to protect or conceal their face. Then, I'm sorry to admit that the second arrest I made was unwarranted and I unnecessarily branded my Mexican friend Victor as a grammar bandit when, indeed, he committed no such crime. I said to him that the word patent could not be pronounced as patent. Well, it turns out we were both right. Mine is simply the American pronunciation, while Victor's is the sophisticated British pronunciation. Oh, bloody hell. Well, chip chip cheerio, until next time.